pastor has started through the book of John, and we're continuing this morning with that section called The Great Discourse of Teachings. It's found in uh, John chapters 14 through 17. It's a teaching that Jesus actually started teaching the disciples in the upper room uh, when they were having the Passover uh, get-together and that uh, transformed into what we have as the Lord's table. Today, he instituted the Lord's Supper at, the, at that Last Supper. And uh, that's when the teaching started. And he moved from there out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just a short distance uh, away from, from uh, the city of Jerusalem. And uh, last week, Eric led us through the first 17 verses of, of John chapter 15. So I invite you to turn there today, John chapter 15, and we'll pick it up uh, from where Pastor left off. Because while he was in the garden, and it's important to get the setting, understand the background, what's going on. Again, he's in the middle, of the, actually today he's right in the middle of this whole teaching that he's doing. Uh, and, and he's in the garden. And, and so that's why he started out with the illustration of understanding the vine and the branches. Remember last week, that's what he was talking about. And some of the snippets from those opening verses go like this. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Again, he said, abide in me. You've got to stick with me. Uh, another phrase is you have to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't bear anything. You've got to stick with me and bear much fruit. And then he gives the command one more time. How many times? Love one another. It really is all about love. And then finally he said, do what I command. Well, those are the highlights anyway of the first 17 verses. And we've already learned in John chapter 15 that, that we are to abide in Christ by simply loving one another. And by the way, those aren't options. Those, those are commands, they're requirements that Jesus put upon us. In other words, you, you can't remain in Christ and not have love for God and not have love for people. In fact, so much so that a failure to love is actually a breakdown of true discipleship. Now, there's another condition that results from our abiding in Christ. We've been grafted in. He's the vine. We're the branches. And it comes with a lot of conditions. There's another one that Pastor didn't mention last week, and this is what he's left for me today to explain to you. Last week was all about love. Well, this next part is all about hatred. That's a condition that we can expect if we stick to the vine. Now, it's one of the most difficult concepts of the Christian faith to digest, but it's one that, that Jesus truly spoke to us clearly about so clearly that it's perfectly applicable to the times in which we live today, our culture, this world. Let's have a word of prayer before we delve into the text. God, we come before you opening the truth of your word and recognizing your authority in all of this. We submit to you and to your word, God, and just ask that your Holy Spirit would truly fill us and Allow us hearts of understanding so that we can be better prepared to face the world in which you've placed us. God, it's a tough task, and we realize that even though we have all good intentions, the world doesn't always meet and greet us with the same love that we have for them. So I seek your blessing today as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you don't need me to tell you that last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. 
or as we heard from Pastor, uh, superb owl, another way of saying that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, here we found two opposing teams working in opposite directions to achieve their victory. And we saw the game open up, the offense putting all of its energy and marching down to the field, Eagles scoring that goal, the defense doing all that it could to prevent that from happening, get them, not getting them to the goal line. And the whole game went like that, back and forth. The scoring was good. It was a good, tight game and all of that until the fourth quarter and the referees decided, you know, to call a penalty and kind of give the game to, to the Chiefs. But I, I won't talk about that. The point is that football, like most other sports, actually serve as a good illustration for what it means to have opposing forces, each with a plan to win the game by taking advantage of their own strengths while attacking the opponent's weaknesses. And let me tell you, it's much like our own spiritual battle. That's the way it is. However, when it comes to spiritual matters, the only big difference is this isn't a game. What we face is reality. We're not playing this game. And Jesus warned us of this time and time again about spiritual warfare. He warned us that when you follow him, you can expect opposition. You can expect persecution. You can expect hatred. That's why for me it's so sad when people who are on the same team start attacking each other. Satan loves it when we do his work for him. Hey, we're in this together. We're all on the same team. Remember, we're rooted into the same vine. And in order for that to work, we have to work together with the passion and purpose because facing the opposition, folks, is not pleasant. And it's not just in chapter 15 of John that we, we learn about persecution and hatred and hostility. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know, it, it doesn't sound fair, but it's true. The opposition can be expected when we decide to abide in Christ. Expect opposition. The warning comes from several places in the Bible, and even in our text today, Jesus provides the instructions we need on how to handle the opposition. Let's take a look at the first uh, few verses here. Verses 18 to 20. The first thing we need to know about facing the opposition is we need to prepare. Be prepared to be hated. This is what Jesus taught. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
hey, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, about two and a half years before this event in the garden, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples for what I'd call the the first short-term mission trip. And their assignment was to do good works, go out in the world, do good works, things like drive out demons, every kind of sickness and disease. And then Jesus gave them a a long list of instructions. It's found in Matthew 10. And if anybody's preparing for short-term mission trip or even a very short-term mission trip, like across the street uh, from your house, whatever, you, you should read Matthew 10 to get the instructions. But in verse 22, this is what he told them. He said, at the end of the instructions, he said, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see a recurring theme here in Jesus' teachings? So the teaching that he provides here in John 15, not the first time these disciples heard these things from Jesus. They heard it all before. Expect the world to hate you. By the the way, when he uses the term world here, what, what he's talking about is humanity that is lost without the Lord. So kind of keep that in mind, too. You know, it's not the physical world or things. here. It's people that don't have the Lord in their lives. What we need to know is that the world out there doesn't operate nicely. They have a whole different set of standards. Largely, it's because God's law is ignored. And in our generation, we find that even more so than ever before. At least a, a generation or two ago, they would still teach the Ten Commandments in the classroom, public school classrooms. They would still have those things posted in public places. Different standards, different laws. So when we heed the command from Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, we, we don't go unprepared. But listen, we go forewarned. We have uh, an offense that takes the field. And we operate under the command to love one another. Yes, the gospel is offensive, by the way. But the world has a different standard. We don't go out expecting the world to love us. We don't expect the world to accept our faith in the Lord. We have a different set of standards. Remember, several years ago, I had a gentleman, about 40 years old, who came to church to worship on one Sunday morning. And he, he sat over on the stage left about the second row and, and uh, kind of noticed him while I was preaching. And, and uh, he seemed to do okay uh, throughout the service. But after the service, as people were kind of standing around and mingling, you know, like we do here for like an hour after service. And, so uh, uh, I happened to look back over there, and here the man was, still sitting, but this time he had his hands over his face and his head down in his lap. I said, well, that's interesting. I'll go over and talk to him, see what all that's about. You know? And so uh, I went over. Nice to meet you. Glad you came this morning. What did you think? He looked up at me and said, Pastor, 
I'm never coming back here again. I said, kind of response. Why? He said, he said that, that was too convicting. And I kind of walked away. It was hard for me not to chuckle because, you know, for me it was a score. You know, hey, you're preaching the gospel. It's touchdown, right? And, and that's what happens. People are going to get convicted. I don't know that the man ever came back again. Maybe he lived up to his word. I don't remember. I remember the feeling of, of just having a, a satisfaction of knowing the world hears things a little bit differently because they're following a different set of rules. Let's move on, because there's three things to keep in mind every time you face a harsh reality of the hatred of the world. Number one is don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. It's hard for me. My wife will tell you how much I take everything pretty personally. So don't take it personally. Jesus said, this is not about you. This is about me. That's what Jesus said. The hostility that you encounter in the world is not about you. It's really about Jesus Christ. He knew. He experienced firsthand the hostility of the world. Look what Jesus did. He did nothing but good. He promoted things like love and forgiveness. There's nothing that, that, that he did that warranted the hatred that he received in response. So when you stand up for your faith, your faith in Jesus, and the world responds with cruelty, hatred, persecution. Say, oh yeah, I was expecting that. I'm prepared for that. It's not personal. That's the expected response. And Jesus knew exactly what we would be facing. The world hates you. You're on a different team. You know, Patrick Mahomes, he did not fail to go in for one play because he said, hey, that other team hates me. I'm not going out there. Forget about this, you know. Those, those people hate me. But no, he goes out there because he's driven. And he knew he had to, to do what his job was. And yet a lot of Christians fail to go out because they say, ah, oh, the world hates me anyway, so I'll just keep silent. I'll just stay on the sidelines. I'm not going to get involved. I'll keep my faith to myself, thank you. It's tough. It's a tough world. I've seen it happen a lot of times when a you know, brand-new Christian comes to faith in the Lord, get all excited about their newfound faith, and where do they go? They go and tell the people who are closest to them, friends and family. Hey, these are the same people that had, they had gone to before with good news in their lives. A new job, a new baby, maybe a new house. And they were always greeted with enthusiasm and support and affirmation. But this time, they bring the good news that they've become saved. And now they're Christians. Uh, many of them find a reaction quite different. Well, that reaction might look like, um, well, a strange look, maybe a cold indifference, or maybe even some antagonistic remarks. Experienced it myself some 40-plus years ago with my own family, that is, my parents, my siblings. I brought up the topic of my salvation. Uh, they would talk it immediately, uh, changing the subject. How about those Red Sox? How are they doing, you know? So, it was a, just a, not an out-and-out animosity, but it was certainly a rejection by everything that I believe near and dear to my heart. I come to the conclusion we're simply different because of Christ. I know it's a hard message to hear, but it doesn't get any more truthful or practical than this. Prepare to be rejected. 
prepare yourself to be hated. Hostility comes with the territory. Number three is they follow a different set of rules. The third thing to keep in mind when you're facing that opposition is a whole different set of rules going on. You know, the, the way of the world is a game. And if you want to fit into the way of the world, you have to keep up with their ever-changing rules. And we've been told by presidents and politicians how much change is needed and how change is so good. But the world never tells us what changes are needed for the good. I don't get all that. And the culture establishes its ever-changing set of rules and promotes its values through media and education and government. And all of those needs or values and changes uh, seem to be based upon economics and not morality. Yet, so while so much of the world is ever-changing, here we are, the church, abiding in Christ and living by a standard called the Word of God that is unchanging. Unchanging. So our goal is to focus on the unchanging God. You know, we don't change the, the Word in hoping to conform to the world. The Word of God, it's not a bunch of suggestions that we can use and abuse or twist and turn for our liking and make it say what we want it to say so that perhaps it becomes a little bit more tolerable to the world. I've got a Greek word for that. It's baloney. That's, that's, that's what that is. The Word of God is the unchanging standard for this ever-changing world. Most of those people who are wrapped up in the ways of the world, they're following a whole different set of man-made rules. You know, they don't even realize they're playing the game. The, odd, the most odd thing, though, in all of that to me is that the people of the world, they think the church is a game. They do. They think that we have all these rules to follow and we have no time for fun and all we do is spend all of our time in church. So they get discouraged even before they decide uh, what it's all about. They play the game of the world following an ever-changing set of rules based on economics and a failure of morality. Jesus said, if you are loved by the world, guess what? You belong to the world. But if you're a Christian, you've got to prepare yourself to be hated. Why? Why, Jesus? My question is, why? Well, fortunately, he gives us the answer here, probably only here, not those other places that I mentioned earlier. Five for the answer. And we're going to find here that the root of hatred, godlessness. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now... They have no excuse for their sin. Sounds like a little bit of Romans 1 and 2, doesn't it? Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Hated me without a cause.
truly black and white. The root of all hatred is found in godlessness. There are the two camps. There are those who are with Jesus, and there are those without him. Jesus said in Matthew 12, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So it's one way or the other. You're either in Christ or you're not. Like I said, the biggest problem is godliness. The world needs change. Changes in economic policy will just not address the, the truest and greatest needs of the people. Spending trillions of dollars uh, that we don't have will not cure the biggest need of the people. If unemployment was 0.0, it would not solve the greatest need of godlessness in our culture. Because that's the real problem, godlessness. And it shows up in a couple of ways. It shows up in the rejection of truth. And by the rejection of truth, I mean rejection of Jesus and his church. You know why now the world is in such a mess. It's simply because they've opted out of following God. The world has taken you and me and the entire church and kind of marginalized it in order to diminish any impact that we might have upon the world. Yet, we hold the one and the only cure for true security and true hope. Our Pledge of Allegiance of the United States still says, one nation under God, although many people are trying to change that. But you know, I don't think that, you can't change that truth, by the way. But even that's not the complete remedy. One nation under God. The real remedy has something to do closer with being one nation with God. And the only way that happens is for a nation to come to Jesus. I know and you know that people say, well, I believe in God. Hey, let me tell you, even demons believe in God, right? It changes nothing. The issue is not so much knowing about God, that God's out there somewhere. The real issue is doing what God wants us to do. The word is obedience, being obedient to the commandments, doing actions according to his love and according to his goodwill. That's what the world needs. Let's not keep it a secret. The world needs Christ. And in verse 21, he makes it so clear. People know right from wrong. They really are without excuse. Sinning against God's will, they know they are. They just feel guilty about that, and they don't want to feel guilty. But instead of facing the facts and the truth, they just wholesale reject all of the facts, all of the truth. Everything is up for grabs. You believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what, what I want to believe. In that, they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God. I, I so many stories over the years that I've heard a lot of people tell me when they find out that I was a pastor, that they say, well, I don't attend church, you know, because, uh, boy, the, the thought of Jesus makes me feel so guilty. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? I've heard it lots of times. And my, my answer to that is, it's not Jesus who makes you feel guilty. It's your sin of rejecting Jesus that makes you feel guilty. <laughs> you come to Jesus and you'll find only acceptance 
and love and forgiveness. There's so many good things that your thought of who Jesus is is negated. Rejecting Jesus, and he makes it clear they've also rejected my father. Hard to imagine. The world hates God. It amazes me that the creation can have such feelings of hatred towards its creator. So the result of godlessness, well, it provides the world with more and more than enough, number two, motivation for evil actions. Motivation for evil actions comes from godlessness. What motivates a a terrorist to, to carry a bomb into a crowded marketplace? What motivates a person to walk into a school and start shooting people? What motivates the leader of a country to use its weapons to invade a neighboring country? There's only one answer. It's godlessness. Some actually say they do it in the name of some other god, like Allah. They don't know anything about the kingdom of God and the one true God. People like that are motivated by lies, not by truth. They're motivated by hate, not love. They're motivated by selfish gain, thinking that they're going to be rewarded somehow eternity because of their acts of desperation. Well, they're going to be brutally surprised when they find out that they're getting what they deserve, and it's not anything what they expected. God motivates. Godlessness motivates evil actions. But that takes us back to us. Forget about the world for a minute. Think about us. How are we motivated? And Jesus puts it very clearly here in this last section, verses 15, 26, all the way to 6.4. Listen to Jesus' response. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So our response is to tell the truth about God to be motivated by love in telling the truth about God. And the first thing that we need to do is we need to testify, Jesus said, testify with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when they heard this, they probably didn't exactly get it. Remember, we're we're talking, we're still a few weeks away from Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had not come upon them in that way. It was still a future event. But for us, it's a present reality because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Now, the next section of the text, I'm going to leave for Eric next week, because that's going to talk all about the Holy Spirit. So I'm eagerly looking forward to, to his explanation of, of how all that works. But what we're dealing with is the fact that we're living in this hostile place. But that same hostile place, folks, that's our mission field. That's our battleground. It's where we need to go. It's where we need to be. Back at Riverside Christian Church, I used to have a big banner over the back door as you went out the door into the, into the world. And that banner read, you are now entering your mission field. That's our field. That's what we have to work with. Hostile as it is, we don't go alone. 
We go with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do all of our work for us. There's still things that we need to provide because we've been commissioned to go and to teach and to preach and to baptize and to spread the good news and to make disciples. And this is best done when we team up with the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got to tell you one more story before I conclude because it's one that's near and dear to my heart too. It's another victory for, the, for Christ. But a very, very number of years ago, I guess it goes back to about 30 years ago, I had a, a gentleman came to church too, but this time he was dragged, I, I, literally dragged into the church by his wife. Literally. Yet, you're coming. And he had totally resistant, totally of the world. He was a professor at Southern New Hampshire University, and uh, he, didn't need, he didn't need the Lord. He didn't need anything other, any other message in his life. But he started listening, started preaching. After uh, a while, um, he, he came around. It started to make too much sense to him. He actually uh, was teaching a computer class, and, and I caught his attention by using that acronym WYSIWYG. Anybody here, old computer people, know what WYSIWYG stands for? In the computer world, what you see is what you get. They hardly even say that anymore because now it's automatic. But back in the old days, that was a, that was a classic format of understanding uh, computer talk. So I caught him with WYSIWYG, and that's what I told him the message was. That's what the Bible is. What you see is what you get. And he liked that, and he started listening, he started growing, and he was baptized into the Lord and became a devout Christian. And then shortly after that, they went away, I think it was Cincinnati, and heard, uh, again, about 10 years later, I got a call at my office one afternoon. Hey, this is Mike. Wow, Mike, how you doing? Hey, I'm just visiting the area. I'd like to come by and see you. And he said, I got my son with me, and he wants to be baptized. So I, I wonder if I could baptize him in the same baptistry that you baptized me. And I'm going, win! Touchdown! <laughs> Victory! That's a sweet story. How it not only affects people, but it affects generations of people. The decision you make today, think about the impact it has on your children, your grandchildren your great-grandchildren. You don't even know who they are yet. That's how impactful that decision is. But the second thing we need to do is remain close to Jesus, remain close to his teachings. The message we proclaim, I admit, firsthand, it's very narrow. Jesus said that too, that the road is very narrow that leads to the kingdom of heaven. But remember that that message is so far-reaching we believe and we teach. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Kind of change the perspective of things, doesn't it? When you realize that the same world that we've been talking about, the world who hates us, that's the world that God so loves. A world so filled with hatred and cruelty and hostility, that's the world that God so loves? That's the world that Jesus died for? And don't think that you're immune from it. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that there was a time when every one of us was part of that world. Every one of us. And we were headed on the pathway of death because of our sins. But Jesus changed all that for us. The invitation remains open, and today we get to celebrate the Lord's table one more time, when in a way we sort of renew 
our commitment to Christ every time we come around the table. What I know is this. The world is desperate need of change. The world needs Christ. And we need to tell the truth about God. Third action is to heed the warnings of Jesus. Heed the warnings. He said, don't be surprised when people kill in the name of God or some other name. And then look at verse 2 of chapter 16. He said, they think they are offering a service to God. It's amazing. Jesus warned us, they don't even know God. They don't even know God. And back to verse 25, I love that phrase that he said, they hated me without reason. There's nothing in this whole text that makes more sense to me than that. They hated me without reason. Because if you look at the world, it's not about reason, it's not about logic, it doesn't make sense. The world doesn't need a reason for hatred. But get this, folks. We need every reason in order to love. And we love because Jesus loves us. I know, I know, I know. We're, we're, we're on the smaller team. We're much smaller in size. We don't have as much experience. We're facing the giants. But the good news in all of this, folks, we're on the right side of things. You know, we love and we know and we serve the one true living God. And he's already provided victory, by the way. The victory is ours because of the cross of Christ. We are still living in this world, but we are not of this world. I want to skip ahead just a little bit into pastor's text because in John 16, verse 33, the last verse of this chapter, listen to what Jesus said. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So even, even when we're misunderstood, even when we're rejected, even when we're treated harshly, even when we're hated, what do we do? We keep on proclaiming the truth. We keep on telling people, this is the way. It's narrow as can be, but it's the only way to get to heaven. We go down the street waving a banner that says we are filled with the hope of Jesus. We are marching down the field, facing the opposition as we go in victory. And now it's time for us to participate in the Lord's table. I was kind of hoping today we could meet in the round, but there's too many people here in order for us to do that, so we'll revert back to our normal way of doing things. Uh, what we do is we proceed from the back of the room and uh, we use the outer aisles to come down, pick up the elements, go up the center aisle, and to return uh, to your seats. Before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. At the end of the prayer, I'll ask the men to come up to help serve. So Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. Thanks for the clarity that your word brings to us. It's so refreshing because out in the world, there's so much confusion, there's so much change. And yet when we come together focused on your word, we can rely on the truth. We can rely on the clear path that brings us victory. And Jesus, you provided that victory for us. You provided that vic victory over sin and over death. And you gave us these elements that we par partake today to celebrate your presence here with us. And we're reminded once again, Lord, that we are never alone. The battle rages. 
but you have already defeated the enemy, and we give you thanks. You have overcome the world, and we are blessed because of you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.